Welcome. You're listening to the Sanctuary Podcast with Tully and Chivijan. Be sure to follow us on our social media channels. You can find the Sanctuary Jupiter on all major social media platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. Okay, uh, this is uh, part three in a series that I started a few weeks ago called Life Without God. We have been making our way slowly through some passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I preached through the book of Ecclesiastes probably in like 2010 or something like that. And maybe two months ago, I was trying to think of what I would be preaching in the new year. And uh, I was falling asleep one night and it sort of dawned on me that I hadn't read the book of Ecclesiastes or had I revisited the sermons that I had preached so many years ago. So I got up the next morning and read through some of the material. And I have to be honest, 80% of the material was useless, okay? Um, But there was 20% that was useful. And I didn't realize until I was reading through those sermons again um, that even though the message hasn't changed, the messenger has been changed by God. And so there are just new things that I want to say and new insights that God has given me. So I've really been enjoying going back to Ecclesiastes. Um, I want to focus your attention this morning on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 and reading down through verse 11. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing after the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Sobering. So I want to begin with a quote from The Matrix Um, this is, if you're not familiar with the matrix, that's okay. This will still be meaningful to you. This is the first matrix, none of the sequels. Um, and it's the first conversation that Morpheus is having with Neo. 
Not that that means anything to you, but it means something to me. Listen to what he says. You are here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life. There is something wrong with the world, but you don't know what it is. It sits there like a splinter in your mind. I think he speaks for all of us in that regard. We spend our lives trying to fill voids. You may be aware of that. You may be unaware of that, but we spend, make no mistake about it, we, we spend our lives trying to fill voids, voids that we feel. We use relationships to make us feel less lonely. We use work to make us feel accomplished. We, we use education to make us feel smart. We use pleasure to make us feel alive. We use romance to make us feel loved. We use sex to make us feel desired. We're on a constant search for that missing piece of the puzzle that we can sense but can't fully identify. I read an article yesterday that listed self-help book statistics. Not that these statistics shocked me, um, but nevertheless, I was still somewhat amazed In the U.S., did you know that in the U.S., the sales of self-help books have grown to 18.6 million copies a year. 15,000 self-help books are published in the U.S. each year, and that number is growing. And this is probably the most stunning. The self-help book industry is now worth $10.5 billion. And that number grows every year. I mean, people are looking for answers. People are looking for help, searching for that thing that's missing, that thing that they can sense but can't fully identify. They look under every rock and behind every tree. Everyone searches somewhere for meaning. You could even say everyone searches everywhere for meaning. Everyone looks for truth. Everyone attaches his or her identity to someone, to something. Everyone searches for fulfillment. Everyone. As Blaise Pascal once said hundreds of years ago, we are born with a God-shaped void in our soul that only God is big enough to fill. The writer of Ecclesiastes is no exception. Like us, he is he's on the hunt. He's searching. He's looking. In fact, I said when I started this series that if I were to give this series, Life Without God, a subtitle, it would simply be The Search. Because throughout Ecclesiastes, in fact, he begins many of his paragraphs by saying, I have seen, I have tested, I have discovered. He's looking, he's searching, he's hunting. He's not some ivory tower pontificator. He's slugging his way through life on the ground, desperately looking for something to make him feel alive, something that will satisfy, something that will fill the void. And what he concludes over and over and over and over again is that everything and everyone in this world will fail you. No exceptions. Everyone 
and everything in this world will fail you, will let you down. Relying on an achievement or an experience or a person, really anything under the sun, to be our source of meaning and purpose and identity is like building a house on the sand. It can be easily washed away. In fact, he says here that it's like chasing after the wind. Something that you chase but can never catch. The search for the missing piece of the puzzle under the sun leads us to the edge and drives us to despair and causes us to cry out, is this it? Is this all that there is? In fact, you can make your way through the book of Ecclesiastes and he doesn't really give us any answers. He doesn't provide any solutions. He basically concludes by saying, if there is no God, everything is meaningless. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is intended to sort of push us to the edge, to get the reader, you and me, to come to the edge and to go, is this all that there is? You have to look outside the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible to find the solution, to find the answer. But it's not here. It's just, it's a book of questions. It's a book filled with expressed frustrations It's meant to give voice to our own questions and our own frustrations. Well, in this section, the one that I read a few minutes ago, he talks about pleasure. In verses 1 through 8, he describes everything he did to fatten his life with comfort, with pleasure. He describes all the pleasures he pursued to try and find lasting fulfillment And then in verses 9 through 11, he acknowledges that none of it worked. No matter how hard and fast he searched, none of it it worked. Listen again to what he says in verses 10 and 11. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. You know, many people have taken these verses to mean that pleasure in itself is wrong. Or sinful. There are many people of faith who subscribe to some form of asceticism. Now, if you've never heard that word, asceticism is simply a denial of simple pleasures, believing that any and all pleasures are a destructive distraction from holy things, from God things. So monks from various faith traditions seclude themselves and they deny themselves all sorts of pleasures and comforts, thinking that somehow those denials will bring them closer to God. The proper definition of asceticism is a severe discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. And that's not just for the monks, that's for us too, something that I keep in mind, especially in religious circles during this season of Lent. Um, Not that giving up bad habits is ever a bad thing, it's a good thing, 
But this idea that somehow giving something up or denying myself some kind of comfort will generate God's closeness to me is a form of asceticism that I think in some way, shape, or form we're all guilty of. Some people even think that when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That when he said that, he was championing asceticism, a denial of any and all comforts and pleasures. I mean, is Jesus saying there that we need to refrain from all pleasure and all comfort? Is he saying you need to suppress every desire you have? Is he saying that you shouldn't enjoy sports and dancing and good food and good laughs and good music and stuff like that? That's not what he means, thank God. Um, So if that's not what he means, because a lot of people go to that verse to try to defend whatever form of asceticism they've adopted. So if that's not what he means, then, then what is he saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying that the self that needs to be denied is this notion that we can somehow sacrifice enough or do enough or deny ourselves enough to get God's favor, to get him to bless us. In other words, the self that needs to be denied is that part of us that thinks self-denial will get God closer to us. That's what he's talking about there. Now, there is obviously, it goes without saying, a proper place for us to deny ourselves. There are certain desires we have because we're broken people that are destructive. And if we don't deny ourselves those desires, then it will, it will wreak havoc in our lives and the lives of people around us. So there is a, there is a self-denial that is helpful But in no way is Jesus talking about the denial of all comforts and pleasures in this life. That's an extreme form of asceticism that sort of has this idea that the more I deny myself comforts and pleasures, the more God will be obligated to draw near to me, the closer to God I will get. That's the stuff that Jesus is saying we need to mortify, put to death, do away with. Um, and then when Jesus says, uh, at the end of that, of that verse, uh, to pick up the cross and follow me, what he means there is taking up the cross means that, means that you trust Jesus did all the right things required to secure our place in God's loving arms forever. And that there's nothing we can do or fail to do that will change God's mind about us ever. That's what it means. That's not what I grew up believing. Every time that verse was preached and I heard about this taking up the cross, I just, you know, I thought that what that meant was that I better intentionally make my life hard, hard like Jesus's life was hard and do the same things that Jesus did and sacrifice all the things that Jesus sacrificed as if I could do that, as if any of us could do that. But when Jesus says, take up the cross, he means take up my cross. In other words, I am going to do everything required to make you right with God forever. Trust that. It's John chapter 6 when Jesus' disciples said to him, you know, Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the will of God, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replies and simply says, believe in the one who he sent. That's it. 
God doesn't need any of our good works. And none of our good works make us, make God love us more. The flip side of that is also true, that none of our bad works make God love us less. Jesus secured our place in God's loving arms forever by what he did. And that's what it means to take up the cross, trusting in Christ's finished work for us, that when he said, it is finished, he meant it. Done deal. In forever. Um, So, by all means, deny the self that is hell-bent on earning and take up the cross of Jesus' finished work for you, okay? So neither Jesus nor the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying that pleasure in itself is wrong. That would be a misinterpretation of what the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying here, and it would be a misinterpretation of what Jesus also said. I mean, think about it. There's so much to enjoy in this life. So much. Yes, this world is broken and fallen, and we are broken and fallen, and everyone in this world is broken and fallen, and yet God's grace still shines through in so many of the pleasures that we enjoy in this life. I mean, think about it. Uh, There's just so much magic designed to delight us in this world, laughter, love, a sense of accomplishment, restful vacations, sexual pleasure, beautiful beaches, our children, our grandchildren, romantic relationships, good movies, good music, good food, good friendships, sunsets, sunrises. I mean, I could go on and on and on. God hardwired us to enjoy these things. He created pleasures for us to experience and enjoy. What the writer of Ecclesiastes is referring to is the futile and fruitless attempt to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in those same pleasures. That's what he's talking about. When we depend on pleasure to deliver ultimate meaning, and ultimate satisfaction, we end up feeling empty and lost, frustrated and hollow, like he describes here in these verses. It's the hedonic treadmill I talked about a few weeks ago. Um, That idea that we keep chasing for something more and then once we get it, we adapt and need something even more intense to scratch that itch. That's what he's talking about. As far back as I can remember, I have been on that treadmill. Um, I wrote about that this past year, and I want to read you what I wrote. An embarrassing confession, but true. I always wanted more than what I had. Even though I'd been given so much, it never felt like enough. I was always looking past wherever I was or whoever I was with for something better, something more enlivening. As a teenager, regardless of where I was, who I was with, or what I was doing, something better and more exciting had to be around the bend, right? I was always looking for more fun, more adventure, more freedom, something more exciting. Now, some of that I attribute to being a teenager, being young. The hunt for more is a facet of youth. But left unexamined and unchecked, unchallenged even, that hunger for more follows you into adulthood where the stakes are infinitely higher. As I got older, 
It became increasingly hard to enjoy the season of life I was in because I kept looking ahead to the next one. As a college student, I couldn't wait to get to graduate school. When I was in graduate school, I couldn't wait to get on with my career. Not long after I took my first job out of seminary, I was thinking ahead to what my next job would be. As a pastor, Sundays were the carrot dangling on the stick. I always wanted next Sunday to be bigger than last Sunday, the next sermon to be better than the last sermon. As an author, I always wanted the next book to be better and to sell more than the last book. Hedonic treadmill indeed. That's been my life. Uh, there's a professor by the name of, he's in his 80s now. He's written some amazing books. Uh, he's a philosophy professor at Boston College named Peter Kraft. Um, and he said this, which I find extremely enlightening and insightful. He said, every pleasure, every serious pleasure seeker knows the result of the experiment. Pleasure inevitably becomes boring sooner or later. In Greek philosophy, the pursuit of pleasure turned into the avoidance of pain. In modern times, the pursuit of pleasure often turns into an addiction. Stronger and stronger doses must be found to fend off familiarity and boredom. Sometimes, in a bizarre twist, it becomes its opposite, the pursuit of pain sadomasochism, anything to relieve the boredom. He's describing the hedonic treadmill, the search for more. There's got to be more. Well, ultimately, in my case, the thirst for what I thought I didn't have caused me to lose everything I did have. What does it profit a man to gain a fortune and lose his soul? Jesus said. C.S. Lewis speaks about looking for ultimate satisfaction in the pleasures of this life. And this quote is probably a top five for me. I first heard it when I was in college, and it immediately made sense, and I fell in love with it. He wrote this so eloquently and so insightfully. He wrote this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. Lewis is getting at something he, he understands something of the struggle that the writer of Ecclesiastes is struggling with. There is a deeper magic above and beyond the pleasures in this life, a magic that all the pleasures in this life point to. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, enjoying God's love is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children and friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These things are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. There is something magical that hovers above and beyond 
the pleasures in this life, uh, a magic, like I said, that all the pleasures in this life point to. See, pleasures under the sun that we experience, the many that we experience, are intended to be pointers to the ultimate pleasure, which comes from being known and loved by God unconditionally. Romantic intimacy reminds me that God is closer to me than I could ever imagine. A hearty laugh with good friends reminds me that God is an infallible, that God has an infallible sense of humor, thankfully. I think he laughs at me all the time. Good music and good food highlights the creator who inspires and animates all creativity for our enjoyment. So what's fascinating about this is that when you look at everything under the sun from the vantage point of above the sun, every pleasure is more pleasurable. Everyone. All the pleasures that we experience in this life, that God wants us to experience in this life, are more pleasurable when we, when we understand what's behind it, or more accurately, who's behind it, and how all of these pleasures that we experience are meant to show us something of God, something of who he is, something of how much he loves us. Psalm 1611 puts it like this beautifully. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure is not in and of itself a bad thing. I said a few minutes ago, if we indulge certain things that please us for a moment, they can be very destructive, and so we have to ask God for wisdom and discernment when it comes to pleasure because certain pleasures can be very seductive and suck us in and destroy our lives and the lives of those around us. But those pleasures that God gives us to enjoy, all the things I mentioned before, they're meant to connect us to God in a way that we weren't connected before, to remind us of God in a way that we need reminding to help us understand something about God and his love for us and his desire for us. When we experience desires that are deep, desires that are rich, that's supposed to be a pointer to how much God desires us. So all of these things, these pleasures that we get to enjoy here and now are meant to connect us to God eternal pleasures at his right hand. The writer of Ecclesiastes likens the pursuit of meaning under the sun to chasing the wind, something that can never be caught. If you're looking to pleasure or for pleasure to satisfy your ultimate hunger for meaning and significance and fulfillment, you'll never catch it. It's like chasing the wind. But there's another wind in the Bible that chases us. Jonah knew about it. <laughs> Jesus' disciples knew about it. And Jesus talked about it. I read an article yesterday that says it better than I can. So I want to I conclude with this. 
The writer says, it's been said that this wind blows where it wishes, and you can even hear its sound. It sounds like grace, like rest from striving. There are whispers of done, not do, in its wisps, and freedom in its gust. There is a wind striving after us, and if we listen closely, we'll hear the call to toil no more to wipe the sweat from our brow and release our white knuckles from the nothingness in our palms. This wind sweeps up those weary from striving and gives them to the God who strives, the God who steps into our world of vanity and absurdity, embracing it and freeing it from striving any longer. For the good news of the gospel is that striving certainly has its place, but take heart, O weary one, it is not with us. Unlike the wind we chase but can never catch, the wind of God's grace chases us, catches us, and whispers, there's no need to chase any longer. What you've been searching for has found you. What you've been hunting has been hunting you. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. God, it's easy to speak about these things, teach these things, even to some degree, understand these things. But all of this is far too deep for our feeble minds and hearts to grasp fully. And so I pray as we fumble our way through this broken world as broken people and as we experience those pleasures that you designed for us to experience for our enjoyment. I pray that we would see you behind it all. That we would feel your smile behind it all. That we would hear your laughter behind it all. And that we would rest. That we would cease our striving. Because you are the striver. You are the hunter. You are the ultimate seeker who seeks us, finds us, and sets us free. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. If you've enjoyed this message, would you consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary? You can visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give for more information on ways to give. That's thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.